Well, I mean, I'm not a, in certain settings, I'm really not much of a talker either, you know? So it's just, I can't help it if I have like this voice that booms across waters, <laughs> across roaring waters and vast plains. <laughs> no, I know you do. <laughs> I know you do, Cornelia. I just have a lot of moments where I don't say anything, so. Nobody's questioning your ability to talk, Cornelia. <laughs> I, you know, actually, in normal life, uh -huh. in my old life, I was pretty quiet. Were you? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you kind of, was it a quenching of your personality, or was it just you yeah, are just a different quiet. person? Yeah, versus now. I yeah, yeah, no, I I know it's that too. Just like when it's just the three of us in the office or whatever, and I'm alone a lot, I'm likely to talk. Well, it's also like we'll tell you what we think usually, so it doesn't even matter. You don't have to wait for us to say something, especially Jeff. So, all right, Lord, be with this effort that I put forth, as it is yours and not mine. <sighs> As a Chinese-American missionary uh, who served in China for two years, uh, my time there uh, was interesting because a lot of the people I worked with and the people I, I worked for or served uh, saw me as this kind of cultural bridge. The American missionaries, mostly who were from the Deep South, uh, hadn't, had, hadn't spent most of their life around Asians at all. And so uh, all of Asian culture was brand new to them. And in some ways, I was their shortcut uh, to understanding Chinese people, or at least that's what they thought. Constant questions of, hey, why, why do Chinese people do this? Why do they do that? Uh, why do they think this way? Why do they act this way? But the reality was, is uh, very often as they came forward with these questions, my answer often was, you know what, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the people in China confuse me just as much as, as they confuse you. Conversely, the people in China that uh, I was hoping to serve and, and sharing the gospel with uh, wanted to understand Americans and, and some of the Americans that I was working with and that we all met and spent time with. Uh, and so they just under figured that, hey, I'm American. I grew up in America. I should understand all of America. And yet the reality is I know nothing of the Deep South. I've, I've never really spent too much time there. And so they would always ask me, hey, why do, uh, why do these other Americans, um, why do they do this? Why do they say that? Why do they act this way? And quite often the answer was the same. You know what? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea why they are this way. You know, and so the reality was, is they saw me as this cultural bridge, yet I was the type of bridge that like Indiana Jones had to cross, you know, the rickety, really dangerous, totally not the type of bridge that serves anybody. Uh, incredibly unhelpful. This whole experience ended up underscoring uh, this tension that a lot of children of immigrants uh, live with, where, uh, and something I've, I think I've talked about before, but really that feeling of not being Chinese enough 
for China and yet not being American enough when I live in America. This kind of tension and conflict that I live with isn't really just a cultural experience. Uh, it's something that a lot of people live with every single day, and it comes from all kinds of backgrounds, and you experience it in all kinds of different ways. Our passage today specifically says that those who follow Jesus should not be surprised to experience tension, conflict, and hatred as they engage the world. Something along the lines of not feeling like you totally fit in or that you don't really seem to be in the right place all the time in how we make sense of the world we live in. You know, uh, and it, it would make sense that Jesus would say, tell, us to, tell us this because Jesus himself experienced it, right? He was hated so much by the world around him, they crucified him for it. At every moment, you see throughout the stories in the Gospels uh, that he was misunderstood, that people would ask questions of him with ill intent. And even those who sought to understand him, those who followed him, his own disciples, they never seemed to really get him. And so for us as those who uh, follow Christ, for those of us who abide in Christ, as we've been talking about, as he's the true vine and we are the branches, if abiding in Christ means we bear fruit, the fruit of becoming more like him, then we should expect the same type of tension, conflict, and at some points, hatred. And we experience it in so many different ways. So much of this is rooted really in our identity uh, in who God is transforming us to be, and it will necessarily put us at odds with the world around us when the world wants us to be something entirely different. You see this in many different ways, right? Culturally, uh, I have friends who have been disowned by their parents because they trust in Jesus, because they've turned their back on their cultural beliefs and the cultural worldviews and systems that they've been uh, said, only our people observe this and this alone. And so when they decide to follow Jesus, their family uh, pushes them away. You know, and even for myself, I have grown up and, and still feel today the tension as an Asian, as a Chinese person, uh, the tension of filial piety, the uh, calling I have, uh, in my culture to honor my parents above all else when the bible says i'm one flesh with my wife that she is ultimately ultimately uh, on earth my first earthly human priority and so what does that look like to make sense of that in light of the demands of, at the same time of honoring my parents you see this politically Right? Obviously, uh, there was the invasion of the Capitol uh, a couple weeks ago where those who did this uh, rebellious and, and terrible act wove, uh, waved sorry, uh, flags that said Jesus uh, and the, the, the bothersome nature of that, the really the horrible nature of that, and feeling the conflict of whatever their pol political reason for doing this um, and the fact that they, they used Jesus' name to do that. And at the same time, living in a place like the Bay Area, where there are so many assumptions about who we are as Christians before we ever get an opportunity to engage someone in dialogue or conversation. 
You know, uh, when you think about socialist and communist countries and the way they view churches, in those countries, churches are seen as weapons of the state. They're forms of oppression against uh, the, the lower class because only the elites have time for faith. Uh, and so they're seen as something to be avoided or something to be um, uh, uh, suspicious of. Meanwhile, in uh, authoritarian regimes or even in monarchies, churches sometimes end up being seen as the subversive ones, the ones who are the grassroots, who are always trying to lead people away from the authority of the government. And so there's always this push and pull of politics and our faith in trust in Jesus in so many different ways, a tension that's always there that often spills over into hatred. There's the, the reality of relational tension. Maybe you're married with a spouse who isn't Christian. And so there's uh, sometimes uh, issues that deal with the priorities you have in your family, for the type of family you want to have, for the way you want to raise your kids, for the way you want to introduce them to Jesus and talk about faith with them versus your spouse. And then other just particular issues of how to go about life when you are uh, married to someone who doesn't follow Jesus. And you're also just thinking about how you engage your community. I can't tell you how many awkward conversations and incredibly awkward silences I get from neighbors when I tell them I'm a pastor. And it's, it's weird. Suddenly they just don't know how to respond. Uh, and, and you see that time and time again. Financially, it's hard. In this day and age, in this time where everyone is saving, where jobs are at stake, and the idea that for some people giving 10%, right, or faithfully tithing and giving offering or being generous with any group of people just seems like something is, that, that's foolish in a time when we're called, uh, where everyone around us is saying, uh, you're supposed to save. Or even in a time where everyone's suspicious, we're giving to something, uh, charity itself is seen as something that you're either trying to get something out of it or you're just an absolute fool. You're crazy. All these tensions and all these conflicts that we run into are all rooted in our issues of identity, right? Because we live in a world where uh, we believe that, where we're told to believe that we get to choose who we really want to be, that everything is self-determined, right? We're masters of our fates, we're captains of our souls. And so we're taught to believe that you are the choices you make, you are what you do, you are what you wear, right? But this is at, at incredible odds with the identity we receive in Christ as we see, especially here in this passage. Verse 19, it says, we didn't choose to become like Christ. He has chosen us. He has chosen us to become like him, to have our identities be molded and shaped by him. So what this means, it means two specific things. One, is it, it, it means that we are chosen solely by God's grace, right? So we don't get to form and fashion our own identities. Only God gets to do that. But the good news is God is loving. God is perfect. God is gracious. God created us. So only if, if there's anyone who should be forming and fashioning us, it should be the one who created us, who knows what we were intended to be, right? And so, uh, you know, 
Some of us might think, well, what if you don't like the person you become when you follow Jesus? And there's people who, uh, having done ministry uh, for especially younger groups of people, like college students, like I did for, for many years, that was a, a big concern. What if, what if I don't become the person I really want to be if I follow Jesus and it's better for me to do this or go this way because this is who I really want to be? But isn't that the... Isn't that the deep existential angst that this whole world has, right? This need for self-definition, though we never really get to uh, see the fulfillment that we desire in defining ourselves, right? Because our whole culture and our whole world is wrought with depression, anxiety, worry, uh, um, and just a, a sadness over never really being who we really think we should be. How every attempt to become the person that others will love, admire, and respect, that it never seems, it never seems to be fulfilled, and we never seem to get it right. And so this whole idea that we need to become who we think, we think we need to become, the reality is that that really is a road that leads us nowhere. But the grace of God, the grace of the God who created us, who has loved us before we even existed and were born, and the grace of God that chooses us to be objects of his love, right? That grace is amazing. That grace is transforming. It, 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 it's, it's one that, that is it's, it's amazing in this way, right? Because the grace of God means that he is forming us, not to make us lovable to him, but he's forming us because he loves us already. And that's 100% different from how the world tries to form us and change us and call us to conform to its patterns. What that means is that we can be, by the grace of God, as he's at work in us because he loves us, not so that he will learn to love us. What that means is we don't have to be so concerned about the type of person we will become because we will become that which God has already set his heart on. It means we can care more about the one who loves us already, not the one who will eventually love us. And there's a, a freedom in that. There's a beauty in that, right? It means we don't have to be perfect. Something that Christians are always accused of. Hey, Christians, you guys think you're all perfect, that you have it all together. And the reality is, is no, actually, that's the complete opposite of what we are by the grace of God. It's because we're not perfect. It's because we're not all together. It's because we recognize our own flaws and failures and inability to change that we run to God, that we need Jesus. It's that, uh, that fleeing to humility so that we know God will be at work in us. There's something freeing and liberating about that. And so we're not crushed by what Jesus is doing in our lives as we abide in him and as we bear fruit but we can rest and we can trust and we can know that, that the God who knows us oh so well is at work in transforming us and making us more like his son. <clears throat> That's what God's grace does. That's what it means to be chosen by him. The other part of that, the second part to be thinking about is this, that you are chosen, that when God chooses us, when Christ says he chooses us, <clears throat> specifically in this passage, what he's saying is he's chosen us that we are out of this world. 
It's weird. We are out of this world. Verse 19, God has chosen us from out of this world. That who he is forming us to be will have nothing to do with the pattern of life set forth in this world by our culture. Right? We will, not, we will necessarily not be in alignment with the world around us. And that's because we are being formed by something heavenly, something outside of here, something supernatural, a miracle in every sense of the word. We live in such a divided society where everyone has to have a stance on every issue, right? Race, politics, culture. And furthermore, we're now expected to be wholly identified with whatever stance we take. That there is no nuance, there are no gray areas, and there are no compromise. <clears throat> and so because of this, a lot of us will experience conflict and tension with the world when we don't fit those categories, when we refuse to go to the extent that the world calls us to go, right? And so when we walk away from all these demands, when we decide instead Christ is enough, right, that will put us at enmity. It will create tension and conflict because we are saying what this world has to offer, what this world demands of us is not enough. Only Christ is. Because the reality is, for Chinese people, I will never be Chinese enough. For my parents, I will never be Chinese enough. And the reality is, is for me living in America, I will never be American enough in certain parts of America. In the same way, the reality is, I will never be liberal the way liberals demand liberals to be. And I will never be conservative the way conservatives demand conservatives to be. I just won't. <clears throat> Because I'm not going to be, uh, my identity is not wrapped in becoming those things. It's, it's wrapped in Christ. You know, <clears throat> I've never really understood Americans and their fascination with the royal family. Uh, because, I guess because, I mean, I, it makes sense that we, you know, country came from England or ran away from England and wanted to get away from that whole thing in some ways. But just... I don't know if it's an immigrant thing. I don't know what it is. I just don't get why people love the royal family or pay attention to the royal family here. But one of the interesting uh, storylines or things that have occurred recently is uh, the whole situation with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and th the fact that they gave up their royal titles and chose to live as private citizens, moving out of uh, England and choosing to live in Canada. And many people back uh, in the country in England, we're wondering, you know, why? Why would anyone give up the privilege? Americans were telling me this. Why, why would anyone give up the privileges of royalty? Man, you are a princess. Isn't that awesome? You get to wear these nice gowns and have a tiara on and all these things. And people, you know, bow and curtsy and all these wonderful dinners and meals and meet all these uh, wonderful people. And, and, and people just can't seem to fathom why. Uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle would give up all these privileges. Why? And, and it goes to the extent, again, like we said, right? You, you can't do it enough. You have to be all the way. Uh, for, because, uh, because of that, some people accuse Prince Harry of, oh, he is rebelling and turning his back on the royal family. He's, he's a, a rebel against his country. He must hate his own country, right? Um, and I also, I mean, from what I've heard, there's stuff about race, about Meghan Markle's race, uh, there's issues of class that have to deal with that and being a foreigner, blah, 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 all these other, other kind of things, I know. Again, I, I don't really know everything, but I've just heard these things. 
But what it seems to come down to for me as I, as I just kind of try to make sense of the story is ultimately the main reason why uh, Prince Harry is choosing to give up all of this royalty and all of these privileges to become an ordinary citizen is because she's worth it. It's just that simple. Ultimately, she is worth it. Life with her is worth more than life as a prince. His country will not understand it. His people don't understand it. And in fact, they not only hate her, but they are beginning to hate him for it. And on one level, this is actually true about what it means for us as we follow Christ. Because if we're chosen by Christ, we have enough. We don't, we don't need to be enough. We don't need to earn some sense of value to be enough for Jesus we only need to believe that he's enough for us because his grace is sufficient. His love is fulfilling. It, it, it's enough for us so that nothing in this world is more, it, it can surpass what we have in Christ. So, of course, Jesus is enough. Jesus is worth it. And that's true. But there's something even deeper and more powerful in all of this. Because God choosing us in Christ even if it leads us into a life of tension and conflict and struggle with the world around us, that grace tells us it communicates that in choosing us, Christ is saying, life with you as I've chosen you is worth it to me. It's not that we choose Jesus and say, oh, Jesus is worth it. More importantly, Jesus is saying, I'm choosing you because you're worth it to me. I'm going to the cross to suffer and die because you're worth it to me. And so in a world where everything is constantly demanding more and more and more, that world cannot understand that message because it doesn't get grace. Right? All the, all the identity uh, whether it's identity politics or things that we choose to pour our lives into in this world, are always constantly asking us, why can't you be more like this? Why can't you do more of this? Why can't you uh, be devoted in this way? And instead, what we have is a Savior who says, I'm giving all of me to you so I can be with you. And that's why you have tension. That's why we have conflict. That's also why we have good news. And that's why we have grace. So what does this mean for us as a church? What does it mean for you as you think about your life in Jesus, as you abide in him, as he's the vine and you are the branches? Well, one way to phrase that question or think about it is this. What if you... What if it seems like right now in your life, you don't sense that tension at all? What if uh, how you live in light of following Jesus, there is no conflict for you? You don't feel like there's a tension. Well, there's two possibilities to make sense of that, right? One is uh, the possibility that perhaps your identity actually still isn't in Christ. That you aren't finding yourself in him, but you're conforming who you are to something else in this world. And so you're finding a temporary relief, a temporary satisfaction 
something that will not fulfill you, but for the moment seems to be okay. And that's why you're not feeling that tension, because you think you're meeting this world's demands. So what you're settling for is a grace that is of this world, or not even a grace, you're settling for a satisfaction that's of this world, but not the otherworldly, supernatural, heavenly grace of Christ. And that's probably why you're not feeling it. Another possibility, though, is that maybe your life is so withdrawn from the world that you are so disengaged with the world around you because uh, whether it's because of the, you know, in your mind, I don't want to be polluted by anything. I don't want to be affected by anything, right? And I know that in a time of shelter in place, it's probably easy to take that posture unknowingly. But, but we have to understand that as, as the church, we're not called to withdraw from the world either, right? Christ, when he warns his followers that there will be conflict, that there will, they will face hatred of some sort, is not calling them to therefore step out of the world, run away from it, don't deal with it. Because what do you, I mean, think about it. Jesus is there telling them this. Where do you think he came from? He came from the glories of heaven to earth to tell them this. He left his home to tell them this. And so how much more is those who are like Christ, who are becoming like Christ as we bear fruit, are we called to uh, move forward bearing the same message of grace, of the gospel, that Jesus himself lived for us? This is why our passage ends in verse 27, where Jesus says that we bear witness in response to his love. We don't step out and do things. Uh, we, we don't step out of the things that we're called to do in this world and, and pretend to separate ourselves, but we enter into it knowing right, that there is a, a blessing of grace for those who are willing to receive it, that they need to hear. And the good news for us, as verse 26 tells us, we can do this with confidence and with hope because his spirit is with us. There's a freedom to this. We don't have to be besieged by worry or anxiety. Again, you are chosen by Christ, right? So that means we're not trying to earn God's favor by testifying to X amount of people a day or getting X amount of people to confess that they believe in Jesus. Because Jesus' love is already on us simply because he chose us by his grace. But we can go forward without that pressure and instead we can, without worry or anxiety, live freely, live uh, with compassion, and live in light of Christ before others. We don't have to fear rejection. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be self-preserving in our actions and in our language with the world around us. Because if we're called to abide in Christ, verse 21, if we are abiding in Christ, the problem will ultimately not be with us. The problem the world will have is with God. And that, for us, is good. Because I don't think I can take on the world, but I know God can. We can testify of Christ freely, hopefully, and lovingly. Because of his grace. We can persevere no matter what conflict comes our way because we are abiding in the resurrected Christ. Our lives are hidden with him. We are here. We have to live through this tension. We have to live through this conflict. 
But the good news is Christ came, he delivered this message, he lived uh, and, and brought forth grace by his life, death, and in his resurrection and in his ascension, he, he is with the Father in heaven right now. But that's actually good for us that he ascended. Because now what that means is we live with this tension. We live this, with this conflict in this time right now. But if, we are, if our lives are now hidden in Christ, if we are abiding in him still today, that means our lives are with him in heaven. So that one day heaven and earth will come back together. Christ will return and that tension will will be torn apart. And the peace of God will reign the way it was always supposed to be. And it's with that vision of hope and freedom that we can live with confidence and boldness, even, if, even in the face of all kinds of opposition here today. Friends, this is our call at Grace Alameda. This is our purpose for why we are here. To lay bare the testimony of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how his grace is at work in every single one of us. So as we abide in the true vine, Jesus himself, let's bear the fruit. Let's watch that fruit come forth as we become like him, as we reveal his glory in this city in this world every single day as we hope and trust in him as we live by his grace as those chosen to be a part of his kingdom let's pray father we thank you that um, lord you we did not choose you but you chose us and that it is because of this supernatural miraculous act of grace that God, we are liberated from the bondage of living by the patterns of this world, of being conformed to identities that will never suffice. We thank you that Christ is our all in all. We thank you that he loves us way more than we'll ever be able to love him and that that's okay. And that's a beautiful thing. We thank you that you, Lord, are at work by your spirit every day, making us more like him. May that work of bearing fruit as we abide in him, the, the, as, as branches connected to the true vine, Lord, may that, uh, may that pour forth in blessing to our city, to our neighbors, to our communities. God, we thank you that you are working every single one of us and that there will be a day that the conflicts we feel in everyday life, the tensions we have for following you in a world that doesn't, that God, there will be a day where that will be no more. And we eagerly await that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name we pray, amen. Boo, service done. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. I hope so, we'll see. At least get them thinking about what does it mean to follow him. Uh, you said it was very like. Yeah, I think you said it was just a little. It was pretty dismissive and, and made assumptions about like across the board in a way that was just like that's not helpful. It just made me think. Yeah.
interesting. I, I find it strange that there are still people who really want to rescue the term, you know? What evangelical?